You're listening to Theology for Teens with Nathan Lavallee. Thank you for clicking on my face today. I have a special treat for you. Today, the day that this is going to be posted, I'll be arriving back in town from a youth retreat. So I pre-recorded this video. It's actually earlier than today. There's a time matrix thing of myself and you now. But what you need to know is we're taking a break from our regular programming and talking about a specific issue. I'm actually going to be reading an article from a journal called Themelios, and uh, this is a Christian academic periodical. So we're going to be um, looking at the issue of homosexuality. I think this is an important issue for us to talk about. I will tell you as a youth minister, a lot of youth have questions about homosexuality and feel too scared to ask and talk about it. I think a big part of that is because adults have peddled this message that is going to be addressed in this article that we shouldn't talk about this. I have had, over the course of my time in full-time youth ministry, a very large amount of same-sex struggling students in my youth ministry. And so um, how we talk about this issue really matters. And bringing this article to more people, I think, is going to be a big positive thing. So if you iron out the time to listen through to this entire article that I'm going to read, it is going to bless you on how you navigate this topic of homosexuality. And I think it's going to potentially provide some correction for how we should view this issue. So please stick around for the whole thing. Break it up into a few days if you need to. I'm excited to give this to you. Um, a little bit of context on this article. It's written in response to a guy by the name of Brian McLaren, who's fallen a little bit out of the, the sunshine. Um, he was a prominent author and a prominent progressive, even liberal, I'd say, um, writer who, who talked about different matters of Christianity. He pastored a church. This article is going to be interacting with this individual. You might not know that individual. That's fine. It, this article stands alone pretty well. It has quotes when it is explaining something. So the article is called Why Evangelicals Should Ignore Brian McLaren, How the New Testament Requires Evangelicals to Render a Judgment on the Moral Status of Homosexuality. It's written by a guy by the name of Denny Burke. He's the Associate Professor of New Testament and Dean of Boyce College. So let's dive right in. I'm going to try to keep my comments short. And at the end of the video, I'll have an important thing that you're not going to want to miss where I'm going to be talking about some actual applications of this and actually a pretty firm warning on this topic. So I'm going to read through this. If you want to read through it while I read through it with me, YouTube, I'm going to have the words up on the screen. So here we go. In 2006 on Christianity Today's leadership blog, Pastor Brian McLaren urged evangelical leaders to find a pastoral response to their parishioners on the issue of homosexuality. In short, he argued that the Bible is not clear on the moral status of homosexuality and that the ancient ethic of the Christian church offends moderns too much to be useful. He calls, therefore, upon evangelicals to stop talking about the issue. Here he is in his own words. Frankly, many of us don't know what we should think about homosexuality. We've heard all sides, but no position has yet won our confidence, so that we can say, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and us. If we think that there may actually be a legitimate context for some homosexual relationships, we know that the biblical arguments are nuanced and multi-layered, and the pastoral ramifications are staggeringly complex. We aren't sure if or where lines are to be drawn, nor do we know how to enforce with fairness whatever lines are drawn. Perhaps we need a five-year moratorium on making pronouncements. That's like a silence. 
In the meantime, we'll practice prayerful Christian dialogue, listening respectfully, disagreeing agreeably. When decisions need to be made, they'll be admittedly provisional. We'll keep our ears attuned to scholars in biblical studies, theology, ethics, psychology, genetics, sociology, and related fields. Then in five years, if we have clarity, we'll speak. If not, we'll set another five years for ongoing reflection. That Brian McLaren's opinion on this matter carries weight in the evangelical movement is hardly disputable. There was a reason that Time Magazine selected him in 2005 as one of the 25 most influential evangelicals. He stands at the vanguard of the emergent movement. That's an interesting thing if you wanted to look more into the emergent movement. And a whole sector of professing evangelicals gives considerable weight to his opinion. Nevertheless, with still a year remaining on his moratorium, Brian McLaren has made a moral pronouncement on the moral status of homosexuality. In his 2010 book, A New Kind of Christianity, McLaren seeks to redefine the Christian faith for a new day, and in one chapter in particular, he argues that traditional evangelicals need to abandon their 2,000-year-old ethic on homosexuality. He pillories their belief as fundasexuality, uh, funda <laughs> wow. which he defines as a reactive, combative brand of religious fundamentalism that preoccupies itself with sexuality. It is a kind of heterophobia, the fear of people who are different. Traditional evangelicals, he argued, need an enemy against which they can coalesce in common cause. Groups can exist without a God, but no group can exist without a devil. Some individual or groups or group needs to be identified as the enemy. Gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people are an ideal choice for this kind of scapegoating. For McLaren, evangelicals who treat homosexuals as sinners are really just looking for an enemy, a scapegoat. In other words, traditionalist faith is less about theology than it is about psychology. Evangelicals need someone to loathe, and homosexuals are the unfortunate target. What is clear in all of this is that McLaren has come to definitive conclusions on the matter in spite of what he said in 2006. That McLaren has broken his own moratorium shows how untenable a suggestion it was in the first place. Nevertheless, it is worth considering McLaren's 2006 perspective on its own merits. What if evangelicals would have taken his advice four years ago? What if none of us had been talking about this issue from 2006 to 2010? Would we have missed out on anything? Would there have been lost opportunities for discipling God's people or for being salt and light in the culture? I think the answer to these questions is an unqualified yes. In 2006, the larger debate in American culture over the moral status of homosexuality has only increased, not diminished. Some would point to the United States as an exemplar of the controversy unfolding around the world. In 2006, only one state in America, Massachusetts, sanctioned same-sex unions. Today, there are five states in the District of Columbia. Of course, there's been more advancement since then, 2012. Um, since 2006, activists have effectively applied the logic of the civil rights movement to the issue of same-sex marriage. In Iowa, for existence, the state Supreme Court has declared homosexuals to be a protected class. Thus, marriage must be treated as a civil right protected in law. The upshot of this logic in the wider culture is that advocates of heterosexual monogamy are not regarded merely as foot-tragging traditionalists, but as morally retrograde, ret retrograde bigots. Evangelicals are right to ask how Christians can be salt and light in this kind of culture while having no clear biblical word on homosexuality. The missed opportunities, however, are not merely within the domain of the current culture. 
Christian churches and denominations have also been wrestling with this issue since McLaren's pronouncement in 2006. Mainline Christian denominations in the United States are increasingly divided on the issue. The crisis in the worldwide Anglican community is likely beyond the point of repair. The Episcopal Church in the USA has defied the expressed wishes of the wider Anglican community by continuing its ordination of bishops who are practicing homosexuals. In this year, a majority of bishops and dioceses in the Episcopal Church approved the election of the church's second openly gay bishop, the Reverend Mary D. Glasspool. Archbishop of Canterbury Rowan Williams proposes not to discipline the schismatic American church, but to create a two-party system for the Anglican Communion, one that supports the normalization of homosexuality and one that does not. Through the past decade, many conservatives within the Episcopal Church have departed by one's mean or another and have now organized themselves into an alternative Anglican province. The Anglican Church of North America Meanwhile, the religious case for so-called gay marriage remains a powerful one in other mainlines. The argument has spread into more popular venues as well. Lisa Miller made the religious case for gay marriage in a major article for Newsweek magazine, and she did so on the basis of revisionist scholars who are not observing any moratorium on talking about these issues. In the midst of these massive cultural and ecclesiological shifts, Pastor McLaren has urged evangelicals to be silent. The bad news is that Christians who heeded McLaren's advice have missed four years worth of opportunities to be salt and light in the midst of a morally confused culture. The good news is that there is only one year left. Nevertheless, McLaren is not the only one to have jumped the gun. In the fall of 2008, Tony Jones, the former national coordinator of Emergent Village, of which McLaren is a part, affirmed, that gay persons are fully human persons and should be afforded all the cultural and ecclesial benefits that I am. I now believe that uh, LGBTQ can live lives in accordance with biblical Christianity, at least as much as any of us can, and that their monogamy can and should be sanctioned and blessed by church and state. Jones' pronouncement and many others like it show how untenable McLaren's advice was from the outset. From a New Testament ethics perspective, it simply does not do to propose judgment on this question. We dare not be content to shrug our shoulders at the issue saying, hey, the Christian church 2,000 years old ethic is too offensive in the modern world, and we are not sure what the Bible says about it anyways. McLaren's remarks raise questions about the Bible's meaning and authority. These issues lie at the heart of the discipline of the New Testament ethics, and McLaren's words deserve a response from a New Testament ethics perspective. My aim in this essay is not to comprehensively survey Brian McLaren's views on homosexuality, nor is it my aim to refute more broadly either the emerging church or postmodernism. I refer to McLaren simply as a representative of the many voices within the emergent and progressive wing of the evangelical movement. Many in that wing agree with McLaren's claim that the Bible is not clear about the moral status of homosexuality and that Christians need not press this dive. Uh, this divisive issue since it drives away potential converts. So my aim in this paper is to interrogate these two claims concerning homosexuality from a New Testament ethics perspective. Is it right for evangelicals to be silent on the issue so that Christianity might appeal more widely to the culture? And two, is it true that the Bible is unclear about the moral status of homosexuality? We'll begin with the first question. So in this intro, he sets out, he explains how Brian McLaren called for all evangelical um, thinkers to have five years where they don't talk about homosexuality at all in the position of making, like taking a aside or a position on it, that there would just be dialogue, um, that there would just be study, there would be prayer, 
And after five years, maybe we can take a stance and a position on it. Now, of course, he broke that rule. This article points out he took a hard position. He took a view that evangelicals just need someone to hate and that that is the LGBTQ community. Um, that's an interesting view. Uh, as an evangelical, I don't hate the LGBTQ community. Um, I, I, I try not to hate anyone. So that's interesting. He also, um, the art, the, the writer of this article, I think rightly points out here that the issue, um, he is here the the Christian church, 2000 year old ethic is too offensive in the modern world. And we are not sure what the Bible says about it. Anyways, he states McLaren's remarks, raise questions about the Bible's meaning and authority. I think that is at the heart of this issue put it in a highlight here on the screen. McLaren's remarks raise questions about the Bible's meaning and authority. This is at the heart of the issue here. So let's continue on. We're going to hear, um, should evangelicals be silent? Is it right for evangelicals to be silent on the homosexual question so that Christianity might appeal more widely to the culture? It is true that many in the culture and in the academy regard the 2,000-year-old ethic of the Christian church as oppressive and bigoted. In fall of 2008, for, for instance, I attended a portion of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, slash queer hermeneutics section at the 2008 annual SBL meeting in Boston. The LGBTQ hermeneutics section is a regular part of the program at the SBL annual meeting. Among other things, this section aims to explore the intersection between queer readers and the biblical interpretations. In general, participants in this section support normalizing homosexual orientation and practice. They seek to read the Bible as those who would interrogate traditions, biblical and otherwise, that they deem to be oppressive. What I heard during my visit was both startling and sobering. The presentation that I attended featured a female theologian from a seminary in Atlanta, Georgia. She delivered a paper on Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, a presentation that included a variety of vulgar double entendres involving the text of scripture that would hardly be useful to repeat here. What was noteworthy, however, was her decidedly antagonistic stance towards the apostle Paul. She complained that Paul's letters reveal an attempt not to undermine empire, but to substitute one empire for another, the Christian empire in place of the Roman empire. Thus, Paul's politics were as flawed as Rome's. The apostles' flawed political views were no doubt informed by his flawed views of gender and his embrace of patriarchy. One contemporary application that she drew from scripture was that the current American political system is also flawed because it is organized on the basis of a patriarchal definition of the family. The traditional definition of the family, one man and one woman, in covenanted union at the center, is a structure that oppressively limits who can have sex with whom. Thus, the traditional definition of the family has become an obstacle to liberty. And the American political system is flawed because it is organized around a notion of family that restricts individual liberty. In effect, she was arguing that a just society would not recognize any definition of the family that limits who can have sex with whom. Notice what she argues. It is an issue of liberty and is therefore an issue of justice. To deny one's sexual freedom is to deny them justice. It is through this kind of argument that some of our culture compare traditional Christians to slave owners of a former generation. Both slave owners and Christians deny freedom and justice to their fellow man. The cotton lords of the South were the bigots then. Traditional marriage supporters are the bigots now. In the face of a culture that is growing increasingly hostile to the church's 2,000-year-old sexual ethic, it is no wonder that some evangelicals would elect not to offend 
that culture. After all, we have to live in this culture, and things are a lot easier if we do not buck societal norms. More. Mores. No, that should be norms, yeah. Yet at the heart of this question is the issue of authority. Who or what determines when Christians should and should not speak? If the New Testament provides a normative, universally binding ethic, then one can hardly make the case that Christians can be silent about what God's revelation says about human sexuality. If the New Testament does not provide a normative, universally binding revelation, then it is hard to make the case for pressing its claims on contemporary people at all on any issue. This question, how the New Testament functions as a normative basis for ethics, is one of the central concerns of New Testament ethics, and those participating in the discussion do not all agree with one another. Consider, for instance, the methodological framework for New Testament ethics that Richard Hayes puts forth in his watershed book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament. Hayes argues that New Testament ethics have a fourfold task, the descriptive, synthetic, hermeneutical, and pragmatic. The descriptive task of New Testament ethics is primarily historical and exegetical, determining what the New Testament authors meant by what they wrote. The synthetic task is concerned with the canonical context of scripture and the possibility of coherence among the various witnesses. The hermeneutical task aims to relate the New Testament's ethical content to our current situation. And the pragmatic task involves embodying scripture's imperatives in the life of the Christian community. For Hayes, the hermeneutical and pragmatic tasks must proceed from the assumption that the Bible functions as the authority over Christian faith and practice. He writes, The canonical scriptures constitute the norma normans for the church's life, whereas every other source of moral guidance, whether church tradition, philosophical reasoning, scientific investigation, or claims about contemporary religious experience, must be understood as norma normata, Thus, normative Christian ethics is fundamentally a hermeneutical enterprise. It must begin and end in the interpretation and application of Scripture for the life of the community of faith. All of those writing in the New Testament ethic, however, do not share Hayes' insistence on the authority of Scripture. In fact, many begin their program with either an explicit or implicit setting aside of Scripture's authority. In his 2007 work, Imitating Jesus, an Inclusive Approach to New Testament Ethics, Richard Burridge aims to base his ethics on scriptural teachings. Nevertheless, he outlines a methodology that undermines biblical authority. Burridge takes a biographical approach to New Testament ethics that insists on the priority of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He says that, the key to understanding the New Testament has to be the person of Jesus, and that therefore he is the correct person in place with which to begin as well as to end. The biographical genre of the canonical gospels redirects our gaze back to begin with the historical Jesus, in particular to stress upon both his deeds and his words. For Burridge, the scriptures reveal a tension between Jesus's rigorous moral demands and his inclusive approach to sinners. This tension colors his reading of Paul in some unhelpful ways. That Jesus never explicitly addresses the topic of homosexuality leads us to take Paul's prohibitions less seriously than we otherwise might. He writes, It is puzzling why being against homosexuality, about which Jesus and the Gospels have nothing to say, and Paul has only these passing references alongside many other sins, equally common to heterosexuals, should have become the acid test of what it means to be truly biblical in a number of quarters over the years. Paul's few references to homosexuality, which occur only in his repetition of a couple of his vice lists, should also be read in this context, rather than singled out as a primary test for the Christian fellowship. 
When Burge says that Jesus and the Gospels have nothing to say about these issues, he echoes the objections that homosexual activists have raised for years. They protest that Jesus' silence on the issue shows that homosexuality was of little or no concern to the historical Jesus. Burge marginalizes the relevant Pauline texts by saying, Paul's ethical comments are more like works in progress than being the considered final moral words. The upshot of Burge's approach, therefore, is that all the ethical content of the Pauline witness is subjugated to the inclusive framework of Jesus' ethic. When Paul disagrees with Jesus, guess who wins? Burge writes, Paul's ethical teaching must always be balanced by his appeal to the imitation of Christ, and this entails accepting others as we have been accepted. So Burge wants to use the scripture, even as he adopts a methodology that undermines its authority to guide our ethical thinking. Others more explicitly repudiate the Bible's ethical norms. They would be at the opposite end of the authority spectrum from Hayes. For them, scripture is not the norm and normans of the church's life because the scripture can be normed by our own experiences and opinions. With reference to the morality of same-sex marriage, Luke Timothy Johnson, for instance, conceives of the hermeneutical and pragmatic tasks of New Testament ethics in this way. This quote is terrifying. I have little patience with efforts to make scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says, but what are we to do with what the text says? I think it important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. By so doing, we explicitly reject as well the premise of the scriptural statements condemning homosexuality, namely, that it is a vice freely chosen, a symptom of moral corruption and disobedience to God's created order. Wow. I just want to stop for a moment. This quote is very clear. The Bible does say homosexuality is wrong, but we reject that. And we reject it because there's an authority that is greater than it. And that is our experience. That is the experience of lots of people. Wow. That is terrifying to me. Does that work with anything? If we as a society have an experience of other things that the Bible rejects, is that okay? If we as a society all accept something to be true, does that make it true? No, we've talked about this. Okay, let's keep reading. I'm going to make it through this. He says, I have at least one thing in common with Johnson. I too have little patience with those who do hermeneutical gymnastics with scripture in order to obscure or eliminate the Bible's clear condemnations on homosexual behavior. But where we disagree profoundly is what we should do with the scripture's teaching on this matter. How does all this relate to our initial question? Who or what determines when Christians should and should not speak to a given moral issue? Is it okay for Christians to stop discussing their opposition to homosexuality as McLaren originally suggested? 
Well, if your approach to scripture matches that of Johnson, then clearly the answer is yes. Scriptural teaching can be trumped by other considerations external to it. If your hermeneutical framework matches Hayes, then the answer is no. If scripture is the norm that is not normed by any other norm, then we cannot set homosexuality aside as an issue of moral indifference. Now, let me just say the norm that can't be normed by other norms is the idea that there is not an authority that can trump scripture. There's not something else that we, we take to scripture and say, you know, scripture says this, but this other thing says this, and we're going to follow this other thing. That's the idea of scripture being the, the Norman Normans. So um, that's, that's what he unpacks here. Uh, yeah, so if scripture is the norm that is not norm by any other norm, we cannot set homosexuality aside as an issue of moral indifference. In other words, it is impossible to hold to biblical authority and follow McLaren's view. They are mutually exclusive. We cannot be silent on this. The revisionist scholars are not silent, and we dare not be either. Now, revisionist scholars are people who want to revise what the Bible says. That's what that means. The stakes are too high because Paul says that homosexuals and effeminate persons will not inherit the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Would not evangelical silence on this issue be a death sentence for sinners who must repent? Hayes' hermeneutical framework has special relevance for evangelicals who wish to be faithful to scripture, but who face a culture that is increasingly hostile to scriptural mores or norms. None of us work in a vacuum, and we are all conditioned by our own experiences and context, yet our own experiences and context should never be turned into a pretext for distorting the interpretation of scripture. As the song writer Rich Mullen says about orthodoxy in general, we might well say of the Bible in particular, I did not make it. It is making me. So on to point two. Is the Bible unclear about homosexuality? Now, before we dive into that, let me just summarize that previous section uh, as I see it. He brings out three different people's perspectives on the topic of the authority of Scripture. So one of them is a view that there are lots of different elements of biblical interpretation, but they all serve to see to they all seek to serve our understanding of Scripture. Scripture is primary authority, is uh, is the view of Hayes, this first person that's brought up. Now, the second person who's brought out has a bit of a more uh, subtle view. Their view is that, um, and I'll, I'll just look back up here to get the name here. The, the name on this guy um, is Richard Burridge. That's right, Richard Burridge. He talks about... Um, Jesus having this very inclusive um, view, I would firmly disagree with that. Um, I don't think that that's an accurate um, image of Christ from my reading of the Gospels. And I think it, it, it seems like he points that out too, that God has this very, Jesus has this very high moral standard, but is also uh, very loving to sinners. So he pits that against Paul and uses that to um, kind of clobber Paul's things that he disagrees with, or that it seems like Jesus might disagree with because of this inclusive imaging and, you know, picture that he's built up of Jesus. That's kind of the more common thing. But I mean, I've even encountered in the church people who hold to this, this last view. There's many I've encountered who hold to the middle view, many who hold to this last view, which is to state that the authority of the Bible, um, yeah, it's not the primary authority. There are other authorities that are 
equal alongside it or even over it. And if those other authorities speak strongly enough about something, then they will take precedence and trump biblical authority. I've encountered this. It's scary. And the reason it's scary is because, to my estimation, it appears as though this is only happening on issues that the culture is pressing on. So on the issue of homosexuality, you know, we can rewind 50 years and we we have a book called um, Behind the Ball. And it talks about the propaganda effort that is going to be started on the topic of homosexuality. And it actually ties in great with this article. It talks about how um, these activists are going to make homosexuality into a civil rights issue. We're not going to convince them by the argument that this is good or biblical. We're going to convince them by telling them they are bigots if they disagree. And so this propaganda effort began. And the culture is pressing on this issue. Why is it that Christians who believe other authority can trump scripture, that only ever happens on issues that the culture is pressing? Why is it that it only ever happens on issues like abortion and on issues like homosexuality, on issues like transgenderism, when the culture is pressing providing pressure. We've talked about this on this podcast before. The balloons fly everywhere. When your grounding is not scripture, you're attached to nothing firm. And the balloon goes where it wants to go, where the wind drives it to go. I'm going to call back to this. The way of the wicked in Psalm 1, the path of the wicked, is being blown around in the wind like chaff. So, this is my summary of this section. And this is a great explanation of the landscape on this issue. And what's really behind the issue of homosexuality. So let's go on and talk about, is homosexuality in the Bible unclear? What about McLaren's claim that we cannot be sure what the Bible teaches about homosexuality? It is one thing to assert the Bible's authority. It is another thing to know what the authoritative Bible teaches. Some writers have gone beyond the agnosticism of McLaren. For example, Tex Sample declares that the um, the preponderance of scholarly opinion no longer supports the church's traditional teaching on the moral status of homosexuality. It is true that the traditional reading has little basis, or is it true that the traditional reading has little basis in New Testament scholarship? In the last several decades, there have been a number of scholars who have tried to revise or undermine traditional interpretations of the key biblical texts in this debate. We should note, however, that the revisionists often propose interpretations that are at odds with every interpretation of these texts prior to the middle of the 20th century. If one takes the long view, one would be hard-pressed, whoops, one would be hard-pressed to show that the preponderance of scholarly opinion now falls on the side of the revisionists. It would be helpful, therefore, to explore what New Testament scholars and commentators are now saying about the New Testament texts on homosexuality. Is the issue as contested in the literature as McLaren implies? Is the New Testament really as unclear as McLaren says? The answer to the first question is a fairly simple yes. New Testament scholars contend, contest the moral status of homosexuality. The exegetical discussion has been uh, vol, volum... Man, I've never seen that word before. Voluminous. Okay, like, vo, like lots of volumes. Voluminous and wide-ranging for several decades with arguments for both the revisionist view and traditional view. But the fact that it is contested does not necessarily mean that the New Testament itself is unclear, as we shall see in a moment. The three primary New Testament texts are Romans 1, 26-27, 1 
1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, and 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. Let's read these real quick. So Romans 1, 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. Likewise, the men abandoned natural relationships relations with women and burned with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for this error. I think it's important to note here, there is not specialized language about these men. We have um, the the general word for, um, for, for men here. Let me, um, let's see here. Uh, yeah, right here. So um, this is from the word Arsane just means male. Um, it's not a specialized word for, for homosexuality. Now let's look at this other one. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who submit to or perform homosexual acts, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor verbal abusers, nor slurs. goes on with this list, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Um, okay, so this this word, which is um, the Greek word arsenikoitai, um, you know, we could we could go ahead and do a word study on this, but you know, this isn't really what we're wanting to do right now. Some of the arguments built out for the affirmation of homosexuality try to do things with this word arsenikoitai, um, which which means just to dominate a homosexual partner. So uh, we're not going to dive into that. Th this is specialized language for that act. And then we have First Timothy one nine through ten. We realize that law is not enacted for the righteous, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and profane, for killers of father or mother, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for the homosexual, for slave traders and liars and prejurers and anyone else who is averse to sound teaching that agrees with the glorious gospel of the blessed Lord with which I have been entrusted. So let's just zoom in here. Um, on verse 10, we have... Um, yeah, so we have arsenikoites, which is homosexual, same root word, I'm imagining, um, but it's a noun rather than a verb. So these are the, the big three texts. The first Corinthians and first Timothy texts comprise vice lists that include homosexuality among a host of other acts condemned by God. We just saw that. The most important of these three texts is Romans 1, 26 through 27. That is the one on which we will focus. John Boswell famously contested the traditional interpretation of Romans 1, 26 through 27 in his 1980 book, Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality. He argues the New Testament takes no demonstrable position on homosexuality as we know it. He argues that Paul does not condemn all forms of homosexuality, but only those acts that are committed by people who are naturally heterosexual. Boswell writes, Paul did not discuss gay persons, but only homosexual acts committed by heterosexual persons. Thus, when Paul condemns what is against nature, he refers only to one's own private sexual orientation. Robin Scroggs also renders Romans 1.27 irrelevant to the homosexual question by arguing that Paul meant to condemn only exploitative homosexual acts between men and boys, also known as pedor ah, pederasty. Um, 
yeah, pederasty. Thus, since Paul condemns pederasty and not homosexual relations in general, this text and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 1 Timothy 1, 10 cannot be used to make an ethical judgment against what modern people mean by homosexuality. Um, Gerald Shepard relativizes what he calls the homophobic interpretation of Romans 1.26 by arguing that the Bible's own normative expression of intimate sexual love does begin to suggest some norms and rules in support of loving same-sex relationships. In other words, the secondary matters of scripture, like Paul's view on homosexuality, must give way to the primary emphasis of biblical theology, like justification by faith. In effect, therefore, Paul manifest, Paul's manifest concern for justice trumps his hang-ups about homosexuality. Scholars like Victor Paul Furnish and Margaret Daves make no pretense to honor the authority of Scripture as Shepard does. Rather, their perspectives resemble like Timothy Johnson's mentioned above. They think that what we now know about homosexuality simply trumps Paul's condemnation of it. All of these proposals fail to convince. Boswell fails because he misunderstands what Paul means by nature. For Paul, nature, or fusis, um... Yeah, Fusi's word group is not a reference to one's own private sexual orientation. Nature refers to the creational purposes of God in the primeval event of making male and female. To depart from nature is to depart from the heterosexual norm established in Genesis 1 and 2. Scroggs' pederasty proposition fails because there is not one scintilla of evidence in the text that Paul's talking about relationships between men and boys. Paul speaks of arsenes and arsenet. Ar Arsesin. Uh, my, my Greek reading is really, really slow. Paul speaks of arsenus and arsesin, literally males in males. Romans 127, without saying anything about young boys. Paul can same-sex relation between females in verse 26, but there is no evidence from antiquity that women and young girls are in view. Thus, in both verses 26 and 27, Paul is prohibiting same-sex relations in general. Shepherd, Furnish, and Daves fail because they manifestly undermine the authority of Scripture and their hermeneutical approach. Tom Schreiner correctly evaluates their approach. This view at least has the virtue of honesty, but at the same time it, remotes itself, uh, it removes itself from the realm of biblical and Christian ethics by surrendering to the tides of culture. So yes, it is true that the Bible's teaching on homosexuality is contested, but the recent revisions of the traditional view are seriously flawed. That an interpretation of a text might be contested is by no means ground for concluding that we cannot know what the text means. N.T. Wright's comment to this effect is apt. What we cannot do is to sideline this passage as irrelevant to Christian ethical discourse or to pretend that it means something other than what it says. We should also note that revisionist interpretations have yet to win a consensus among commentators on Romans 1:26 through 27 the traditional understanding still holds in many, if not most, of the major critical commentaries. For instance, Robert Jewett's 2007 Romans commentary for the Hermeneia series is a massive work of scholarship. After all the decades of, decades of homosexual-friendly interpretations, Jewett nevertheless holds the line on the traditional interpretation. In fact, he has gone further than anyone I have seen to show that Paul condemns homosexual behavior generally and not narrowly only with reference to certain kinds of homosexual behavior. He does this in a rather idiosyncratic translation of verse 26 through 27. For this reason, 
This is his translation. For this reason, God delivered them to the desires of their hearts for passions of dishonor, for their females exchanged the natural use for the unnatural, and likewise also the males, after they abandoned their natural use with females, were inflamed with their lust for one another. Males who worked up their shameful member in other males and received back for their deception the recompense that is tightness in themselves. Jewett's translation reveals an explicit depiction of homosexual acts. And Jewett argues that Paul sees them all as sinful. Jewett writes, Paul simply follows his Jewish cultural tradition by construing the entire realm of homosexual relations as evidence that divine wrath was active therein. I'm not citing Jewett as if his work is an un, uh, unassailable authority on the interpretation of Romans. I'm merely highlighting the fact that decades of revisionist interpretations have failed to gain a new consensus to replace the old one. Even this very recent major critical commentary emphatically enunciates the traditional view. Furthermore, Jewett comes to his conclusion without even one reference to the most impor important monograph defending the traditional view. Robert Gagnon's 2001 book, The Bible and Homosexual Practice, Texts and Hermeneutics. Once again, it is true that the Bible's teaching on homosexuality is contested, but the recent revisions of the traditional view are seriously flawed. Probably the most serious error of the revisionists is their failure to see that Paul simply reflects the heterosexual idea that he inherited from Judaism. This fundamental flaw explains in large part why there is not yet a scholarly consensus reflected in major critical commentaries. The evidence still shows that Paul understood the Old Testament prohibit, prohibits homosexuality. He simply carries forward into the new covenant the sexual norm of his Jewish tradition. So I want to pull in another thing here that is helpful for showing this point further. There is a commentary that I have that is so cool. It's called the Lexem research commentary. And this commentary actually unpacks issues and will show what every major commentary says on the issue for that text. And it's uh, this commentary is released for many books. Luckily, it has been released for Romans. So let me, um, I do have to go back over there. So Romans, okay, boom, boom, boom. Let me scroll there. I gave them over. Okay. Here it is. So we have a, a chunk of text um, that we've already read from this Romans passage. This is the most significant one in the debate. And I'll just pull up this Lexem research commentary. I'll show you like 10 different commentaries in the position they take on this from this Lexem commentary that compiles them. So um, DeYoung addresses the then recent attempts to reinterpret Romans 126 by asserting that nature in this passage means what is natural to me and or that Paul condemns only pederasty in Romans 1. DeYoung provides an in-depth grammatical, historical, and contextual analysis of the Greek noun thesis to demonstrate that Paul opposes all forms of same-sex relation in Romans 1. DeYoung is regularly cited by major commentators as one of the key defenders of the traditional interpretation of Paul's view. This came from a scholarly journal, the Journal of Evangelical Theological Society. Fitzmer, in um, the Anchor Yale Bible Commentary, which we should note is a liberal commentary. Um, again, that doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just something to be aware of. Fitzmeyer 
proposes two reasons that Paul singles out homosexual conduct as an example of moral perversion. First, homosexual conduct was prevalent in Greco-Roman society, even though according to Fitzmer, gay people were a minority and homosexual activity was not regarded as either harmful, bizarre, or illicit. Some commentators suggest that Paul may have the behavior and practices of the city of Corinth in mind here, since he likely wrote the letter to the Romans while in Corinth. However, Fitzmer also points out that Corinth's licentious reputation suits the city prior to its reestablishment as a Roman colony. Second, Paul understands homosexuality to stem from idolatry. So that's the view of Fitzmeyer. Craig Keener, massive New Testament scholar, again, doesn't mean he's right on everything. He offers an interpretation on this. He provides a brief yet compact overview of forms of homosexual conduct in Greek and Roman culture. He suggests that Pederasty was by far the most common form of homosexuality in these cultures. Although such behavior was tolerated in Greco-Roman culture, it was also associated with a moral behavior such as gluttony and drunkenness. According to Keener, Jewish people, including those living in the diaspora, condemned such conduct altogether since they believe it went against nature. Keener offers two reasons against limiting the application of Romans 1.26 to just pederasty or pedophilia. Paul could have used the actual term for pederasty, uh, if he had wanted to refer to a restricted group of behavior. And also, Paul mentioned same-sex conduct between women. Keener cautions against appeasing modern-day modern day liberal Western values by limiting the scope of Paul's critique of homosexuality. Okay, then we have the Pillar New Testament commentary, Cruz in 2012. The majority of modern interpreters agree that Paul's teaching in Romans 1, 26-27 involves condemnation of all homosexual practice. Crew's exegetical definition focuses on the definition of the Greek terms physis and physikos, the use of male and female language instead of man-woman. Pillar New Testament commentary is uh, an important commentary. Malik, 1993, this is from um, Bibliotheca Sacra, provides a close reading of Paul's condemnation of homosexuality. The aim and conclusion of Malik's articles are similar to those of de Young, although he focuses less on Paul's terminology. He critiques three interpretations of Romans 1 in the article. He ultimately um, arrives at a traditional view. Homosexuality as a perversion of God's created order. Social science commentary on the letters of Paul, Molina, and Pilch provide a comprehensive discussion of the meaning of nature in its ancient context. They claim that in the first century Mediterranean world, it described what was customary and usual either for a given ethnos or people ethnos or people, a given species of animals, or even a given person or animal. They also mention various references to female-female and male-male sexual relations in the Greco-Coman world that provide insight to attitudes towards homosexuality in the ancient world. They conclude that Paul likely agreed with his fellow first century Jews that homosexuality was related to idolatry. We have Matera um, from Padea argues that Paul's understanding of homosexuality is based on his knowledge of the Mosaic law contends that Paul regards homosexuality not only as a violation of the created order, but also as something contrary to God's will. We have Schreiner in two different places. Um, man, I forget what B-E-C-N-T. Um, that is, oh yeah, Baker exegetical commentary. So Schreiner challenges the interpretation of Romans 1.26 that claims Paul is referring only to acts of homosexuality committed by those who are naturally heterosexual, not to all forms of homosexuality. Thompson, in Moral Formation According to Paul, considers 
the meaning of Romans 126, alongside several other passages in Paul's letters that touch upon the subject of homosexuality. His discussion focuses primarily on vice lists that mention sexual offenses and examines Romans 1. Thompson maintains that Paul's view on homosexuality is indebted to the perinetic instruction of Hellenistic Judaism as well as the book of Leviticus. So, we have these different commentary views. I think it's interesting um, to, to just note these because what I've found as I've studied this topic, I've looked at this commentary and other commentaries, New American Commentary, um, Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary, InterVarsity Press, um, Tyndale, there does seem to be like an 80-20 on this, where most people hold to the traditional view who are serious Bible scholars. So I just want to point that out. And even on like the 20%, it seems like these people generally have uh, a worldview or motive that has a low view of authority, such as the Anchor Yale, um, not Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, sorry, the Anchor, yeah, no, the Anchor, Anchor Yale Bible Commentary is a commentary that has a low view on on um, scriptural authority. So this is interesting to, to look at. So let's move on to the conclusion here. Let's take a look at what um, the author is going to conclude with of this article we've been reading. Conclusion. When Jesus and Paul set out new covenant norms for marriage and sexuality, they do not appeal to polygamous kings like David or Solomon or to polygamous patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. For all the importance of these Old Testament figures, what they have in the history of redemption, Jesus and Paul do not look to any of them as the paradigm for understanding marriage and sex. Instead, Jesus and Paul look back without exception to pre-fall monogamous union of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 as the norm of human sexuality and shall and marriage. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24, Matthew 19.5, Mark 10.7-8, 1 Corinthians 6.16, Ephesians 5.31. Reiterated through every um, period of of history of God's people. The Apostle Paul says that the great mystery of the Genesis 2 norm of marriage, one man and one woman in covenant union, is that God intended it all along to be a shadow of a greater reality. From the Garden of Eden forward, God intended marriage in the Marriage Act to enact a parable of another marriage, Christ's marriage to his church. Thus, marriage and sex are not defined by the culture, but by the gospel itself. Jesus loves his bride exclusively and self-sacrificially, and Jesus' bride must respect and submit to her husband. In this way, God designed marriage to portray a gospel archetype rooted in his eternal purposes. The gospel that shapes this archetype is also the hope for humanity and the context in which human happiness reaches its fullest potential. Here is the innermost meaning of marriage and human sexuality, and faithful Christians will engage the culture with proclamation and living that bears out this truth. Brian McLaren seriously erred in both his 2006 and 2010 remarks about homosexuality. The Bible's verdict on this question is sufficiently clear for Christians to render a verdict on the moral status of homosexuality. For this reason, Christians must never shrink back from declaring the truth of God revealed in the Bible, even if that truth runs counter to the culture. Serious Christians cannot defer judgment on the moral status of homosexuality, as McLaren suggests, for at least three reasons. The Bible's meaning is sufficiently clear in all the relevant passages. Faithful Christian discipleship needs clear norms for human sexuality. And three, Christian witness to the lost world requires an accounting for human sexuality. 
Revisionists and progressives often present us with a false choice concerning the church's ministry to homosexuals. Christians can either walk the path of homophobia and hatred, or they can surrender their ancient beliefs to accommodate the normalization of homosexual practices. But this is an unnecessary dilemma. There is another way. Christians and churches can love and minister to homosexuals while still holding fast to biblical norms for human sexuality. If McLaren's pastoral response, response is as unworkable as I have argued here, then Bible-believing Christians must construct a framework for ministry to people struggling with homosexual sin. I want to pause because I have experience with this, okay? Throughout my youth ministry, I have not been an affirming youth minister in the sense of affirming homosexuality as being not a sin. I have not been that. I you know, haven't been a youth minister that rails against homosexuality, but I've been one that is very willing to speak the truth on this issue. And when the Spirit leads, I follow and I speak the truth on this issue. And when it comes up in conversations, I'm willing to engage on this topic. And I'm willing to say, even when I'm talking with people who struggle with same-sex attraction, you know, God does have a vision for your sexuality and what that's going to look like. His vision is that it's going to reflect the covenant relationship between Christ and the church. And just as Christ is the head of the church, so is man the head of woman in the sense of husband and wife relationship. And I affirm what's in Genesis 2.24 and in Matthew 19.5 and in Ephesians. I'm not afraid to shy away from that. But, but every place I've been, I have had same-sex attracted students who aren't, I mean, completely repulsed by the truth that I'm speaking to them, but actually crave it, but actually yearn for it, that actually want to hear what I have to say on this topic. And they don't leave when they hear it. In fact, they usually draw closer and they want to know more. And it ranges all the way from people who went into the conversation thinking, yeah, I know this is a sin I can't act on, and people who you know, want me to accept them and want to force me to accept them. And as I've interacted with that, what I found is that proclaiming the truth has not had a negative effect on my ability to minister to and evangelize to same-sex attracted Christians. I have not had that problem. For whatever reason, God has, and, and I, I will say, I think God has done this. For whatever reason, God has brought lots of same-sex attracted students to this non-affirming youth minister. And I think it is anecdotal. It's not something that, that you can say this proves something. But to me, it's an affirmation of the argument presented here that we don't have to choose between ministering to homosexual people and proclaiming the truth. We should do both. Now, he's going to go on here. Um, let's, let's take a look at what he's going to say. Revisionists and progressives often present us with this false choice concerning the church's ministry to homosexuals. Um, oh, we already talked about that. Uh, yes. So in 1992, John Piper drafted a statement for Bethlehem Baptist Church that provided that provides such a framework. The statement outlines six points of beliefs about homosexual behavior and ministering to homosexual persons. I commend the statement as a model starting point for any church wishing to reach homosexuals with the gospel. Let's take a look. Number one, 
We believe that heterosexuality is God's revealed will for humankind, and that since God is loving, uh, a chaste and faithful expression of this orientation, whether in singleness or in marriage, is the ideal to which God calls all people. Two, we believe that a homosexual orientation is a result of the fall of humanity into a sinful condition that pervades every person. Whatever biological or familial roots of homosexuality may be discovered, we do not believe that these would sanction or excuse homosexual behavior, though they would deepen our compassion and patience for those who are struggling to be free from sexual temptations. Three, we believe there is hope for the person with a homosexual orientation and that Jesus Christ offers a healing alternative in which the power of sin is broken and the person is freed to know and experience his or her, tr her true identity in Christ and in the fellowship of the church. Four, we believe that this freedom is attained through a process which includes recognizing homosexual behavior as sin, renouncing the practice of homosexual behavior, rediscovering healthy non-erotic friendships with people of the same sex, embracing a moral sexual lifestyle, and in the age to come rising from the dead with a new body free from every sinful impulse. This process parallels the similar process of sanctification needed in dealing with heterosexual temptations as well. We believe that this freedom comes through faith in Jesus Christ by the power of his spirit. Five, we believe that all persons have been created in the image of God and should be accorded human dignity. We believe, therefore, that hateful, fearful, unconcerned harassment of persons with a homosexual orientation should be repudiated. We believe that respect for persons with a homosexual orientation involves honest, reasoned, nonviolent sharing of facts concerning the immorality of, and liability of homosexual behavior. On the other hand, endorsing behavior which the Bible disapproves endangers persons and dishonors God. And six, we believe that Christian churches should reach out in love and truth to minister to people touched by homosexuality, and that those who contend biblically against their own sexual temptation should be patiently assisted in their battle, not ostracized or disdained. However, the more prominent a leadership role or modeling role a person holds in a church or institution of the conference, the higher will be the expectation for God's ideal of sexual obedience and wholeness. We affirm that both heterosexual and homosexual persons should find help in the church to engage in the biblical battle against all improper sexual thoughts and behaviors. So these are the six points that John Piper presents for churches on this issue. I'm just going to straight up tell you, these are the six points I'm trying to put into practice in my ministry. Clear truth, deep empathy, and lots of patience. And, and I'm actively doing this. I'm actively putting this in place. Let's finish out the article. We only have a couple paragraphs. Piper's statement combines the Bible's countercultural teaching with a compassionate call for gospel ministry to homosexual sinners. It is this kind of vision that the churches need to adopt if they are to bring the gospel to bear upon every sinner in need of God's grace in Christ. McLaren's distortion of the Bible's ethic renders this kind of ministry impossible. But here is a concrete example of a better way. Where these kinds of principles define the church's ministry and mission, there is hope for even the most wayward of sinners. The hope of the gospel is for any sinner who will have it, and that includes homosexual sinners. That is why the Apostle Paul was able to say to the homosexual sinners in Corinth, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Paul gives a list of the various kinds of sinners that one finds in the world. Murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, prejurers. Among these, Paul names himself as the worst of the lot because he was a blasphemer, persecutor, and a violent aggressor when God saved him. 
In verse 14, Paul says that he found love when by the mercy of God, he came to Christ. If God's love applies to Paul, the chief of sinners, it certainly applies to other sinners as well including the homosexual sinners of verse 10. This is the message that God has given the church to proclaim, and it is the message that the world desperately needs to hear. This article is incredible. This article is such a good summary of the issues. It doesn't dive too deep in on topics. There's more that you could explore on any of these points, but I so deeply agree with the points and the arguments that this author is making. They seem valid. They seem sound. I have a warning to Christians who take the view that we should be silent on the issue of homosexuality in certain settings. So for example, we should be silent on it from the pulpit on Sunday morning. We should be silent on it in teaching our youth. We should be silent on it you know, in our interactions with non-believers. We should be silent on it in these certain settings. I have a warning. The warning is this. Being silent on this issue does not allow for gospel center ministry to happen on the topic of homosexuality. If it is true that the Bible does say that there is a sexual ethic with which Christians are to hold to, and that homosexuality falls outside of that sexual ethic. And if it's true, um, and if it's true that, that people are going to be talking about this one way or another, it seems to me like as the church, we have a responsibility of bringing the gospel to bear on this topic. And the gospel is this. It's when Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he was murdering, he was persecuting Christians, he was blaspheming the name of God. He encounters Jesus and he's blinded. And he's baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. And in addition to that, he turns away. He repents. And in repentance is this Greek word metanoia, which means change mind, but is a translation of a Hebrew word, which means to be sorrowful for. He turns towards something new. The gospel would not have been enacted in Paul if he had met Jesus on the road to Damascus and continued to murder. I've met Jesus. I have him. I have faith in him, but I'm going to keep persecuting Christians. No, the gospel to bear on his life meant a radical change of his actions. And so when Paul lists homosexuality, as being among other sins, that he was the worst to commit. We can look at Paul for a model of what a homosexual Christian should do. So, we haven't um, we haven't dived into the topic, you know, super deeply. We've we've dived in at a certain level of depth that is good and beneficial. Um, and uh, I hope this is helpful to you. I hope that. You got something new from this that you can bring into this conversation. Uh, if you are a Christian, here's my encouragement to you. So I've given my warning, um, which is that being a Christian that is silent on this topic is actually um, handcuffing meaningful ministry. So here's my encouragement is don't be silent on this topic. Be willing to speak the truth in love. Be willing to say, ah, 
Well, I do believe that that scripture that God has a desire for for what sexuality is to look like in your life. I do believe that. And I believe that God set up marriage ultimately to be a picture of a much more important marriage, which is the marriage between Christ and the church. And um, God set that up a specific way. So that's what I believe. Um, what do you believe? Don't be silent on the issue. That's my encouragement to you, Christians. Be willing to engage. Be willing to speak. Be very willing to be patient. Be very willing to be loving. Um, have have homosexual people at your dinner table and be willing to engage with them at the life level and also be able to be willing and able to engage with them at the gospel level of what it looks like for the good news to be put in place in their life. So that is it. We've gone for an hour. This is the longest episode ever of Theology for Teens. I hope you got something out of this. Thank you for watching and tuning in. We'll be back next week with our regular programming. We'll see you then.